Would you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may not realize this, but every year, the fourth Sunday of Easter, if you are following the lectionary, which are the assigned readings for each year, the fourth Sunday of Easter is called the Good Shepherd Sunday. It's because we hear this reading every year. Now, there are a few scriptures that we hear every year, a few uh, high holy festivals that we hear every year, the Easter story, the Christmas story, the Pentecost story, but we also hear this story about the Good Shepherd. And it must be for some reason that the writers of scripture as well as the people who created the lectionary felt it was really important for us to dwell here on this passage of scripture. Now, this is a bit of a problem for contemporary Americans, especially those of us living city lives. I mean, even people who are more rural. I mean, the truth is, we don't know much about sheep. And we know far less about shepherds, although they do exist in European countries, particularly in Italy, in and around Rome, there are flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. And there are usually shepherds sitting on a rock watching them. Often it's asleep, but still watching them. So for us to kind of talk about this Good Shepherd Sunday, it's kind of an interesting thing, don't you think? Moreover, here's the really interesting part. Jesus was considered a person who had a profession as a carpenter, somebody who builds things, not a shepherd. Jesus wasn't considered by profession a shepherd at all. And yet, this is what we get, the Good Shepherd and Good Shepherd Sunday. So it must be that this reference to Jesus as the Good Shepherd, which is what he refers to himself as, is a metaphor. It's something to us for us to learn from. And it is used throughout Scripture. The Scriptures that Jesus would have learned and studied, and now taught. So the Hebrew scriptures are rampant with references to the Good Shepherd. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all Hebrew prophets, each used the term. Moreover, they contrast this divine Good Shepherd with worthless shepherds who neglect, exploit, and scatter the flock, or sleep while they're supposed to be watching. So, it's what Jesus is doing is teaching from his canon, the scriptures that are holy for what he learned and how he learned about God. Of course, Psalm 23 is likely our best-known reference to God as shepherd, describing the good shepherd with the rod and staff, reminding the listener of the hazards of the wilderness, the rod for fending off wolves and other predators, the staff for rescuing sheep trapped in thickets and crevices. Interesting, isn't it? Language that is so foreign to us, and yet I, 
dare say many of us have been sheep who have been threatened by predators. Many of us have been sheep who have been trapped in thickets or in crevices needing to be pulled out. What's interesting also is that in the next chapters of this Gospel of John, there will be two references to Jesus gathering up the dispersed children of God. I mean, surely you get the imagery there. Sheep being dispersed through the hazards of wilderness and predators and fears. The connection between sheep and the people like us, I think, is obvious. Being dispersed. Jesus explains to the disciples later in this gospel, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The idea that God's salvation extends beyond the expected or conventional bounds. Dispersed children of God, all of them, will be gathered up. And in fact, in this reading today, we hear Jesus referred to other sheep who do not belong to this fold, being gathered up. This is a radical idea for Jesus' day and for ours. You know, like I said, we don't know about sheep and shepherds, but we do know about other sheep, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. Other sheep like our Asian American and Pacific Islander siblings who have suddenly been on the receiving end of prejudice and hatred and violence. We know about other sheep because we live in two different Americas, don't we, those of us who are Euro-Americans? We live in a sheltered, comfortable, oftentimes privileged America, while our siblings, particularly our African-American siblings, George Floyd, Dante Wright, Nakia Bryant, Andrew Brown Jr., we could go on, live in a different America. You know, the celebration of Earth Day 2021 took place on Thursday of last this last week. And even though we were celebrating Earth Day and there were many proclamations from leaders about how we were going to turn the corner on destroying our planet, you know, the, the reality is, is that it doesn't hide the fact that the poorest of the poor the weakest of the weak, the least and the lost and the last and the lonely, those whom we do not see or even think about, are the ones who suffer the most. And Mother Earth is in peril. The ancient prophets, as I told you, critiqued the bad sheep, I mean the bad uh, shepherds. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel doesn't pull any punches on this. Ezekiel proclaims, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, 
bound up the injured, brought back the strayed, sought the lost. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And scattered, they became food for wild animals. Now, within this critique given to us by the prophet Ezekiel, I think we can easily turn the lens on us and the church because it has been the church's job descriptions since the first Pentecost to meet the needs of the poor, to feed the hungry, to bind up the sick, to visit those in prison, to bring back the strayed, and to seek the lost. Well, and then there's the reality that more and more people have left the church and have abandoned their faith. And can you blame them? More and more people every day reject Christianity because of those who want to control people's lives with a binary view of faith, in or out, good or bad, right or wrong, and condemning those who do not see faith the way we see it, who do not do church the way we do it, to a supposed hell. More and more people today are looking for other answers or no answer at all, living lives of quiet desperation. I I dare say there are some among us worshiping today who may feel exactly that way. And so we mute the effects of our desperation with addictions and hatred and judgment and violence. And there are some among us today who don't understand and how I can't see how we can possibly live in a world where there is no shepherd. You know, there, there is this sense that um, that we need uh, a different way of seeing, a different way of being. And by saying uh, people are living without a shepherd, I don't mean that we all have to have the same name for God or even understand God in the same ways or even uh, follow just Jesus. I'm saying that uh, we... We need a grounding, a moral compass, some guiding principle. How are we to live and how are we to survive if we cannot discover within ourselves and see within others this this idea? We're scattered, not unlike sheep. I say we take a look at the gospel and begin finding our way again. What if we start by reading the verse that precedes the one we heard today? So the verse prior to this reading says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Then follows, I am the good shepherd. So it would seem that the goal of the good shepherd's work is to give the sheep abundant life literally and figuratively, that abundant life is about having what you need to survive. As the Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. The question then becomes, what does it mean to have abundant life? 
I think uh, what we will hear in the remaining scriptures of the Easter season is that abundant life actually means learning to live intimately with God. And what follows that intimacy with God is living in right relationship with others. To include the sheep imagery to live within the flock. One flock. None of which is particularly easy. But this can be a moral compass, a guiding principle. Now, to give the sheep this vibrant fullness of life, Jesus is willing, as he says at the beginning of the reading, to lay down his own life. This is a very important theological idea, and I want you to pay real close attention. We know today that self-determination is an essential element for good mental health, which impacts physical health, emotional health, intellectual health, moral health, all the health. Here, Jesus, through the Gospel of John and the Johannine community, out of which this Gospel emerged, expresses his own self-determination. In other words, God didn't send Jesus with the ultimate goal that Jesus has to die. Rather, Jesus says in this passage of Scripture, I take up my own life, I lay down my own life, no one takes it from me. And what I might add, Jesus has this bigger vision of what his death might mean. I mean, with this understanding of Jesus' death, we get the idea that this death and burial and resurrection and ascension, this moment that we are in right now in the Easter season is only the beginning. We, we kind of take Easter and think it's, you know, we're done. But it's only the beginning. Laying down his life is a crucial and difficult step for Jesus to take. But then there is the rising from the dead and the ascending from the earth and drawing all people to God. The Holy Spirit will arrive on the scene at Pentecost. The church will be born. The ecclesial community will go on and do what Jesus calls us to do. Greater works than these, Jesus says. Now, listen, can you get a hold of this? For the writer of the Gospel of John, Jesus' death makes a possibly surprising chain of events take place. It is for the sake of this chain of events and that abundant life of which Jesus speaks that the Good Shepherd takes self-control of his own life and lays his life down for the sheep. We can find a similar pattern in Acts 4, which is the story I told for the children today. You know, they begin that by saying, the, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone. They continue the abundant life, pointing out that it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they are able to do and speak and, and live as Jesus lived. Beneath and throughout all of this, is a broadening, a broadening of the circle of salvation. I mean, think about it. Precisely, who is this abundant life for? And who are these other sheep? I mean, 
the effect of this teaching is that we dare not imagine anyone to be outside God's flock. Do you get that? We better not try to imagine anyone who is beyond God's grace and love. This is huge. And you know what's even better? This story, this teaching, this, these words of Jesus emerge out of a community, a Johannine community, who are living together and working together and, and believing that this kind of life is possible. And out of that, this story emerges. You know, Jesus, when he teaches this, isn't done yet. Despite the healings, despite the preaching, despite all that he had already done and planned to do, Jesus isn't done yet. Jesus says, there are more sheep, not of this fold. And by extension, God isn't done either. Good Friday and Easter morning, far from the climax of the story, is only the beginning. You know, the good news for us today is that God continues to call people from all walks of life. The good news of today is at work in our midst and through us and our faith community to extend abundant life to all people. The good news for all of us today is that we can realize that there are members who will one day constitute Jesus' flock who are beyond our imagination. (laughs) Can you imagine? Jesus is still calling. God is still searching. The Holy Spirit is still seeking to offer abundant life to all. Not some, but to all. Right now, in our book study on Thursday night, we're reading a book by Diana Butler Bass called Grateful. But I also subscribe to her weekly uh, blog. And this week, she introduced the fact that a new book will come out in May. I think it's probably going to be our next book study. (laughs) It seems that a number of writers have been working behind the scenes on a project called How to Heal Our Divides. They have brought together practitioners of what Brian McLaren calls Undivision, to share wisdom and teachings and stories. Diana Butler Bass shared a portion of her writing on why we should even bother with overcoming division in our communities and politics. She is an American historian of Christianity and an advocate for progressive Christianity and writes about American religion and culture, and so we get this rich picture of what she is talking about. But instead of writing about how we heal our divisions, she asks the important question is, why should we heal our divisions? And she ultimately answers her own question by saying, if we do, we heal ourselves. And in the midst of this blog, she quotes from Stephen Patterson's writing. Stephen Patterson is a New Testament scholar. And He's recently argued that the first Christian creed is not the one we say as the Apostles' Creed, but was one that emerged out of the writings of the Apostle Paul to the church at Galatia. This creed was part of the very first baptismal liturgies of those who follow Jesus. For you are all 
children of God's Spirit. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in the Spirit. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps to think about that and to even say it. Patterson insists that Christianity was initially so successful because of that vision of unity. Because in a deeply divided world, that vision of unity held everything together. He writes, We human beings are naturally clannish and partisan. We are defined by who we are not. We are not them. This creed claims that there is no us. No them. We are all one. We are all children of God. Butler Blass goes on to say that not only did the first Christians proclaim these words, they evidently practiced them in their communities. She goes on writing, Of course, this is all an example from my own faith tradition, but American, America is not made up of just Christians. It's made up, when we aren't even a Christian nation. We are made up of many faiths and many backgrounds. But she says, we do have a national creed. And like that early church creed, it proclaims a vision of unity and wholeness. Is an American creed possible? Is it possible that E Pluribus Unum might be that creed? Or are we forever consigned to political divisions that demoralize us? These creeds, the Galatian Creed and the American Creed, can transform us. The question is, can we commit ourselves to that kind of creed? If we can, then something within us can heal. Then we rise. We rise out of this. And the good shepherd draws us in. Because, you see, God is not done yet with you or with me or with any of us. Amen.